Today's scripture is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Melissa. Oh, good morning, uh, church. Uh, my name is Matthew. I serve as the pastor here at Christ City Church, and I am really excited uh, about this morning. A couple of things just uh, to alert you to. Um, it's been like two or three weeks since I've preached, uh, so I'll try not to like sort of pack all of what I missed into today and in that you won't be here all afternoon. I understand there's some sporting event later on today. Um, and then secondly, just to say, last week we started um, a series uh, in the Gospel of John. We are going to take 30 some odd weeks and walk through the Gospel of John, but we will break it up over the course of uh, this year and uh, the first part of next. And so we're continuing in this series. If, you're, uh, if this is sort of your first time here, just know that we are, this is just our second week into it. We also have a reading guide that we've made available to small groups. There's some uh, print versions of it out on the table following the service. You can download it off of, the, off of uh, our website as well. Um, so here's what I want us to, to start off with. Have you, here's my, my question for you. Have you um, ever waited for something that you, knew what was, that you knew was on its way, or at least you were reasonably sure was soon to arrive? Uh, have you ever, uh, you know, it wasn't a, a exactly a sure bet, but you were pretty sure this thing was going to show up. Ever, ever, yeah, I see some head nods. All right, here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to look to your neighbor and say what, what that thing was or what that event was. It may have been a, a holiday for some of you or a vacation or a friend was coming to visit, but something that you knew was about to arrive and you were reasonably sure that it was going to get there, but you weren't 100%, all right? So share with your neighbor who that, what that was, and then I'll call us back here in a minute. All right, let me, uh, let me call us back together. Um... <laughs> something that you were uh, waiting to arrive, you, you weren't sure exactly when, but reasonably sure uh, that it was going to arrive. Maybe, maybe kind of over here to, uh, to my right. What, just somebody shout out something. Amazon package. The, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you weren't sure. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Right, what about from, from right here? Uber. Uber. <laughs> <laughs> knew it was going to arrive, sort of. Good. Anybody else? Well, that, there you go. Taxes. All right. What about you guys? Anybody? Something that you thought was going to arrive, weren't you? A white. A white. Yeah. Oh, what? <laughs> okay. We'll take that. What? Anybody else? I'm sorry. An engagement ring. Good. The bus. The bus. Good. Yeah. Uber driver. That's great. Good. Anybody else? Kind of, you just, there was one burning, you really wanted to, your Instapot, got it, all right, I got it, 
Th those are right. Like, there's things in our lives where we, we, you know, we're reasonably sure that they were that they're going to arrive. Not, you know, not 100%, but pretty, pretty close. For me, so, somebody mentioned. I, I got to tell you, um, hands down, for me, it it really was uh, my my wedding day. Um, there, uh, Lisa and I. This year actually marks uh, 17 years of marriage, which is it's amazing. The harder thing is for me to realize that I'm old enough to have been married 17 years. Like that's just I'm like, no, that's impossible. I'm not that old. Um, the thing is, I you know I was reasonably sure that Lisa was eventually going to come down the aisle, but it wasn't. But it really it just wasn't a sure bet. I mean, any number of things could have happened. She could have gotten into some accident on the way to the, to the church and the limousine. She could have, like, her dad could have talked her out of it at some point. Like, she may have forgotten the way to her grandfather's church that she grew up in some kind of way. Like, any number of things could have, she could have just changed her mind and said, ah, I mean, he's a good dude, but I don't know if he's for me. Like, any number of things could have happened that really derailed that process. But there I stood on April 21st, looking down the aisle at Ebenezer Free Will Baptist Church in Miami, Florida, and I was reasonably confident that when those doors opened up, that Otto Rodriguez was going to be standing there with his second daughter, Lisa. Now, the reason why I was reasonably sure was because there had been a series of things that had happened leading up to April 21st, right? There had, there had been our, our uh, just even our, our dating process of saying, okay, listen, uh, you know, what do you, what do you think about me? Because this is how I think about you. Oh, you really, you feel this way about me. That's great. Oh, but you don't feel as strongly. Hmm, well, that's okay. Maybe we can nurture that. Like it was just, you know, like any number of conversations or things that we had that got, uh, that got us to that point, there were good parts, there were disappointing parts of who we were that we began to share with one another. There was a time that I shared with Lisa, and I've, I've shared here before, that coming out of college, I was an absolute financial wreck, and I shared that with her, and she was like, oh, mm, I'm not sure about that. We're going to have to address that. Like, but she, she was firm with me, but showed me grace and mercy and embrace, and then took me to uh, the elders of her church, and were like, you need to work on him, because I'm not saying yes yet. Uh, and, you know, like, but, but that was a way that she cared for me and, and loved me. That was sort of a data point moving along to April 21st to say, listen, I am reasonably confident that she's with me, that we're together in this. There was uh, the process of our own counseling as we walked through of, of unearthing questions that we hadn't asked ourselves yet, of hopes and dreams that we had and hopes and dreams that were a bit different and even felt divergent at the time. And we weren't quite sure what to make of those. Um, th at the end of it, hard conversation after hard conversation, who stood there was Lisa, tall and strong and in love and saying to me, I love you, not just because of who you are now and not just of who I think that you're going to be in the future, but for all of it. And then there was the wedding day that arrived. There was a lot of logistics we had to do. You had a plan, got to find a venue, got to organize some stuff. And we flew together from San Francisco to Miami. She was on the plane with me. So I thought, well, this is a good sign. I think we're moving in the right direction there. By the time I got to Miami, like my groomsmen arrived, which put me completely at ease, too much at ease. Uh, the night before, like I'm, uh, uh, I'm at the hotel. I'm sitting in the jacuzzi with my guys and I completely forget I'm supposed to go to the airport and pick up Debbie, one of the bridesmaids. I forget so badly. It's like hours later and I get a text like, hey, you left Debbie at the airport. I'm like, oh man, sorry. <laughs> it's like two hours ago. I'm sure she made it. Just laid up in the jacuzzi. <laughs> 
Because I was reasonably sure that when those doors opened, she was going to be there. So by the time that that day came, that instance, I had seen this amazing and strong woman stand with me and love me and encourage me all the way through so that by the time that April 21st, 2001 arrived, my belief that Lisa was going to walk through that door was reasonably strong because it was built on a series of, of, of events where she had, she had just been there. And so my belief in that, it wasn't blind belief, that it actually had a bedrock upon which it was standing. So I, I got a picture. So there you go. My, my hair is sort of <laughs> moved from the top of my head to my chin, but Lisa has not aged, <laughs> apparently. And now, years into it, this solid belief that Lisa and I, that we're going to remain fast. And that belief, as I stand here this, today, it, just about what will happen in the future, that it's likewise built on just years now of, of remaining faithful and being together. My belief in Lisa's ongoing presence and weddedness to me is built on a thousand ways that I've seen her express that love and faithfulness in the past. When we were married through our time of living in intentional community in California, through the time of our uh, living abroad um, in, uh, in Nigeria, of uh, one of the hardest seasons of our marriage as we cared for those that um, were fighting against HIV and AIDS, as we've planted churches and started new ministries, and as we've raised three children, though the jury is still out on the raising uh, and how we're doing there, but so far so good. Um, my belief in the resilience of Lisa's love for me, it isn't built on just some blind hope. But there's actually, there's actually weight to it. There's experience to it that I'm able to look back and say, this is what I think will happen looking forward. There is foundation to my belief. As we look at the Gospel of John, we have said that the Gospel of John is a story of belief. That um, it is a belief that God would act in human history, that God would set right all of uh, the things that humanity had gotten wrong, the things that we'd gotten wrong with one another, the things that we had gotten wrong in the world, and most especially the things that we had gotten wrong in our relationship to God. And so John is a story of belief that Jesus is the Savior of the world, the belief that uh, Jesus is the one in, uh, who would ultimately restore the things that are broken. That Jesus would be the, the, the resetter of things that were misshapen by the pain of the world. The Gospel of John is also a story of belief that Jesus was the long-for Messiah, that he was the one who would undo all of the shattering that humanity had done. John lays out the purpose of his gospel towards the end of his gospel. And Justin mentioned this a bit last week uh, in our opening sermon series. And John says that that main purpose, that the central reason for his writing is that those who read his writing will have their faith, their trust, their belief in Jesus stirred up and strengthened. In John chapter 20, verse uh, 30 and 31, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Saying, we didn't write everything down. We wrote enough of it down. We didn't write everything down. Got tired or just didn't have room. Ran out of paper, ink, something. We didn't write it all down, but this is what we did write down. Verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's gospel, it's, it's really the way to think through it is it's a series of many stories within this larger story that is to point to belief in Jesus. 
Within this main aim, the, the primary purpose of the gospel is, of John is to stir, our, to stir up our belief in Christ. And this is part of the reason why John puts his thesis statement at the end rather than at the beginning. He wants to say, in essence, because you've seen Jesus do all of these things as we've walked through this story, because you've seen his miracles, because you've seen him display daily faithfulness, because uh, you have seen uh, and experienced his love, because there is a bedrock of who Jesus is if Jesus has been all of these things in the past, in, in, in this one in whom we could place our trust in the past, then believe in him because he will continue to do it in the future. You have a bedrock of experience upon which you can draw. So I'm writing these things down so that you can believe that Jesus is the one who rescues in this first chapter of John, one of the first characters that we meet um, is John the Baptizer. We know him a bit more easily by uh, his contemporary name, John the Baptist. Now, uh, John is actually Jesus' cousin. Uh, Jesus' uh, mother Mary and John's mother Elizabeth, they were sisters. Now, just to keep them straight so that you know, we have now encountered very quickly two characters in this gospel that have the same name. Crazy, I know, but they're different. John, the writer of the Gospel of John, is one of Jesus' disciples, and then John the Baptist baptizes. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that sentence. Um, John 1, uh, verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. This first introduction to John the Baptist clues us in into what his role was to be in this story. And we find our first mini-story that uh, points us to belief here. And this mini-story, it deals with John the Baptist. Verse 7 tells us that uh, John the Baptist is a witness, that he's a, that he's a testifier, that uh, uh, he's a proclaimer of who Jesus is. This is essentially uh, uh, John saying, listen, I'm going to tell you my story about how my story fits into the larger story that God is doing and what he's going to be doing through Jesus. And then he follows this up in verse 19. Now this was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. And this verse actually sets the stage uh, for John's witness to belief in Jesus. And just real quick, let me just say, because we'll run into this as we walk through the Gospel of John. Whenever John references Jewish leaders, um, uh, what he's referring to are those Jews who opposed Jesus throughout Jesus' ministry and ultimately those who pushed for Jesus' crucifixion. So early in the Gospel... So early on, this gospel writer, he's identifying who is going to be the antagonists in the story. The Jewish leaders, they come and they question John, who is in the Jordan River, and he's baptizing people. Now, when they show up and they see John, they ask him two questions. They say, who are you and why do you baptize? They're coming to sort of investigate the scene in this situation. These become the two things that they sort of say, John, we need to know who are you, who... who who, who are you? Who do you think you are? And then why do you baptize? I want to cover these two questions real quickly. John uh, 1, beginning of verse 20. Verse 20. Uh, he, being John the Baptist, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I'm not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, nope, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And it continues on. 
Verse 23, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John is asked who he is, and he spends part of his time identifying who he's not before he finally tells them uh, who he is. He's kind of cagey in it. He's like, you want to know who I am? This guy? Nope, not going to tell you. Are you this guy? Nope, not. I mean, he's just like he's playing a little cat and mouse with him. And, and part of it, he finally comes to the end of it, and he says, you want to know who I am? Here's who I am. I'm a storyteller. I'm one who is telling stories in the wilderness. And the thing is that for John to identify who he was, not just to the Jewish leaders, but also to himself, he had to know who he wasn't as well as who he was. He had to say, look, I'm not the Messiah that you're looking for. That's that's not who I am. And I'm not a former idol in your history, which is what Elijah was. And I'm not a prophet. I am not those things. The thing that I am is that I'm just a voice. I'm a herald. I'm a storyteller of belief stories. John identified who he wasn't, even as he identifies who he was. I think that many of us continue to struggle to understand who we are, frankly. Who we truly are in our own skin and in our own story. We want to know, but our journey of answering the who are you question, that it can be a journey of frustration in part because we're still not sure who we aren't. Or stated differently, we find ourselves trying to be someone we aren't meant to be. The clarity that John the Baptist has about himself, it's so attractive to me in part because he's able to say, I'm not that. And this is who I am. Ten years ago, I was at a retreat center uh, with some other ministers and pastors and nonprofit leaders. And we were in Jackson, Mississippi. And we were, hey, Mississippi, shout out. Mr. Stubbs in the house. I don't even have to look. I know who it is. <laughs> we were in Jackson. We were spending time with Dr. John Perkins, who is the founder of the Christian Community Development Association, CCDA. It's a, an organization that we at Christ City are partners with. Um, and then there was another friend of mine, Noel Castellanos, who's, who's now the president of CCDA. He uh, was there, and I was sharing with him, just honestly, I was sharing with him some of my own insecurities about being at the retreat with folks that I sort of viewed as like theological and ministry giants uh, in our nation. And just going, man, what am, what am I doing here? And I was, just, I, I was sharing that with Noel and um, expressing my own hesitation because of the shape that my life as a, as a pastor was taking, and it was a bit different than some of the other ministries and organizations that were there. And... Noel began sharing uh, with me how his journey in ministry was different too. That his journey was different from that of Dr. Perkins. Dr. Perkins was a a civil rights leader and had worked to integrate um, uh, restaurants and other things in, in, uh, in the Delta. And Noel was just sharing that, you know, his calling was different. I remember him saying, look, I'm not the son of a sharecropper and I'm not in rural Mississippi. He said, I'm a Mexican-American living in the La Villita neighborhood in Chicago. And that's who I am. And I remember Noel, he, he just, he locked eyes with me and he looked at me on this back deck of this house in Jackson, Mississippi. And he said, Matthew, when David fought Goliath, he didn't wear Saul's armor. And neither should you. Know who you're not. So that you can know who you are. There's great power in knowing who we are and who we're not. But I think an added part of our journey of knowing who we are is that we can forget the hard, 
places of our world can cloud our identity, that can cause us to lose ourselves in the midst of the pain and the push of the day. There's a powerful scene in the 2006 movie Blood Diamond. The movie is a dramatization of the very real injustices that surround the diamond industry, especially the mining of diamonds in parts of Africa. And there's a scene towards the end where a father whose son has been ripped from him and they are reunited. The son was forced to become a child soldier and the father has been anxiously looking for him. But when he finds him, he realizes that his son has forgotten parts of who he is. And so in a way that only a father can, Solomon Vandy reminds his son, Dia Vandy, who he is. Take a look. Dia, what are you doing? Dia! Nyangbe, Nyangbe, what are you doing? Bella, Dia Vandy of the proud Mende tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister Yanda. And you do baby? Cows wait for you. Anbabu. The wild dog who wants no one but you. Hmm? I know they made you do bad things. But you're not a bad boy. I am your father. Who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again. The thing is, it may well be impossible to know who we are apart from a relationship with the one who made you. We may all be more Diavandi than we care to admit because of the pain of our journey and the separation from our Heavenly Father. And our journey of self-discovery, our journey of answering the who are you question uh, must include a relationship with the Lord. A relationship possible through faith in Jesus because He is the one who made us and who loves us, who pursues us and who has never left us even though we might feel far from Him. So part of the frustration of identity is because we've uh, yet to surrender fully or finally to the Lord. Because it's in relationship with Him that we're freed to step fully into who we are. Shedding who we're not and letting go of our life stories so that they can then point to a larger story that God is telling us in the world. John says it this way in verse 23. John replied in the words of the of Isaiah the prophet, I am a voice calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. John says, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not a prophet of old or even a new prophet. I'm simply one who is telling a story of belief, telling that there's a coming king who will embrace us all and set right the things that are broken. 
John is actually quoting here a fuller section out of Isaiah chapter 40. Let me read that for you. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The image that John the Baptist is invoking here is one of restoration and of salvation. It's the anticipation of this vision that John is testifying to. This is the story that John was believing was just on the horizon. And his testimony, his his deposition was that this right setting of things was on the way. So from that place, John was able to say, this is who I am. This is who I'm not, but this is who I am. And the second question, why do you baptize? Which is a bit more of of a technical question. I say, why, why do you baptize? The question is bound up in their understanding of what baptism represents and what John is now communicating by his baptizing. Verse 24, Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. In verse 24, we now realize that the Jewish leaders are sent. They're sent from a specific sect within Judaism. They're identified as the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as uh, their name actually means the separate ones, and they're deeply interested in the hows and the how-tos and even the who's of keeping the traditional Jewish law. Many of the Pharisees believed that the reason that Rome was occupying Israel was because of the neglect that Israel had had in keeping the law, and so that their oppression by Rome was God's judgment of them. And so for the Pharisees, the way to unhinge themselves from Rome's political colonizing was to be more pure, was to be more holy or more resolute in following the law. And so whenever there's something going on about how we ought to rightly follow the law, the Pharisees want to be there and figure out if this is true or not, because it's not just bound up in their own spiritual well-being, but also their political well-being as well as they understood it. And so when it came to baptism, it was typically Gentiles who were baptized in the Jewish tradition. Whenever a Gentile convert to Judaism, uh, whenever a Gentile converted to Judaism, they were then uh, baptized. They indicated this conversion, this change through baptism. The word baptism is actually, a, it's actually not even an English word, it's a transliteration of a Greek word. Um, baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means just to dip or to, admir- to immerse. The, the word has religious meaning and connotation for us, but it actually uh, came into religious settings through the textile industry. Whenever people had um, fabrics or, of cotton or linen, they would, uh, and they wanted to dye it in indigo or some other uh, uh, coloring, they would baptizo it. They would immerse it. And so a fabric that was once white can now come out blue or orange or pink. That it was, it was immersed. When carried into the Jewish practice, you can then understand why this practice was uh, indicated for the Gentiles that a change had happened. No longer did they practice their old forms of religion, but now they had a new approach to life. Jews, on the other hand, were never baptized. It just wasn't something that Jews did. 
They were already part of those that were identified as God's people by virtue of their Jewishness, by virtue of their ethnic heritage and their family history. There wasn't a need to be baptized. They were already who they were supposed to be. And this is what made John's work so troubling to the Pharisees because he was baptizing Jews. And in so baptizing, John is saying that their belief is misplaced. That their belief had been in their fidelity to the law, which had been impossible to maintain. That their belief had been in their family lineage or in their ethnic heritage as genetic heirs to the Jewish patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That that was the thing that their uh, belief rested upon. And John was saying that such a belief, it was misplaced. That it wasn't right. It was insufficient. That another conversion needed to occur. And the way he was communicating that was by baptizing people into the Jordan River with water. However, John was also saying that what I'm doing, I'm doing this with water. Because I'm telling you that there's another kind of baptism that's to come. And I want you to hear that story too. And so he's, he's doing something that's saying, hey, something else, clue in, there's something else that's up on the horizon. Verse 26, I baptize with water, John replied, but among, you is, uh, uh, but among you stands one you do not know. He's the one who comes after me. John is foreshadowing baptism, a baptism that will come not with water, but with the Spirit of God. He's providing an echo that we'll see in the verses ahead to the spiritual baptism that Jesus was providing that he was going to afford by those who would place faith in Christ. John's testimony to the Jewish leaders, in many ways to us, is this. If our lives are built on belief, if our lives are not built on belief in the one who comes to make crooked paths straight, who makes rough places smooth, who moves mountains, who uh, uh, changes our lives, who fills us with his love, if our lives are not built on that one, then our belief is misplaced and it's insufficient. John is calling the Jewish leaders and he's calling us to lay down our lives and the belief that we can do our lives by ourselves. He's calling us to lay down the belief that our hard work or the hard work of our ancestors is enough to rescue us. John is saying, uh, let that fall to the ground and die. Let that misplaced belief fall to the ground and die so that a new thing can emerge, a new life can spring from that. Lay it to rest so that something beautiful can be brought back. His baptism in the Jordan is a kind of morality play done in anticipation of the arrival of the one who will finally and fully offer a true immersion, a true baptizo that indicates a newness of life that is only found by faith and belief. This is what was so startling to the Pharisees. They were building their lives on the belief that their own effort was what would rescue them and their people. And John was saying to them, your belief is just too small. It's too futile. There's no rescue in that. Lay it aside and believe in the one who is coming. Lay that small belief aside and take up another belief that is rich and robust. 
was listening. Anybody, uh, Invisibilia listeners in here? Anybody listen to the podcast? One, two, three, four, five, six. Great. All six of us. We should have a group together. Um, I was listening to an older one. I'd actually heard about this guy before, but, but the podcast reminded me of him. They were telling the story of Daniel Kish. Um, Daniel is an amazing guy, and when he was a kid, he had retinoblastoma, which is a form of eye cancer. Some of you actually know and have prayed for uh, my uh, nephew, Jackson, uh, who also had retinoblastoma the um, year before last. Um, Jackson lost his left eye to cancer. Daniel Kish, uh, however, lost both eyes when he was very young. And what's unique about Daniel, though, um, from others who are blind, is that he actually taught himself to see again. Um, he, when he was young, he intuitively began sort of clicking his tongue um, in his mouth, and he would listen to the sound waves that, um, that the sounds that came from his clicking tongue, they would bounce off the world around him, and he was able to see the world around him in this way. Um, essentially, uh, he taught himself how to use echolocation, uh, which is the same thing that bats use when they fly around. Daniel became so good at this uh, that um, he would go on like wilderness hikes, he would like run around the neighborhood, he would just walk on his own, he would just do whatever he, he, whatever he wanted to do really. And um, he even taught himself how to ride a bike. Now he would like click like, like really fast as he's riding and he would just, and he would go. And yeah, there were some times where he like crashed into stuff, but for the most part, he, he learned how to do it. And he was, just, he was resilient. He would cook himself dinner. He would make his own lunch. He would do whatever he wanted to do. And he would just, because he taught himself to see the world around him in a different way. The thing, though, um, Daniel doesn't believe that what he's doing is anything outstanding or anything even extraordinary, really. What he believes is um, that he is doing something that every blind person could do. The reason he says that they don't, according to Kish, is because society has set such low expectations for what people who are blind can and can't do. And consequently, those who are blind embrace these expectations and are unable to do the things that they were meant to do and unable to live the lives that they were meant to live. I don't know if Kish is right or not, but it strikes me that what he's calling people to do is to lay aside a belief of too small. He's calling them to lay aside a misbelief and to live into something else. He's saying, let that belief die so that another belief can emerge. And the fruit of that belief are people who could live into a new identity. An identity that says, though you can't see with your eyes, nevertheless you see, and that is who you are. And it also says who you're not. Be baptized into that new belief so that you may rise into a new life of belief. And that was John, the gospel writer's message as well. And that is John the Baptist's message to us as well. Lay aside the belief that you have to conquer your life on your own. Lay aside the belief that you have to do whatever it is that you think you need to do by yourself and instead believe in Jesus, the one who created you and loves you and rescues you. And from that belief, begin to walk into your truest identity so that you may truly, truly see. Let me pray for us.
Jesus, there, um, this is quite an invitation you extend to us. There's a, there's a depth and a width to the invitation that you extend, God. And Lord, we may even be in a place where we're not quite sure how to get our arms around it. What does it mean to lay aside certain beliefs and, and embrace the life that you offer? What does it mean to know who we are and whose we are and who we're not and how that frees us to live more fully and faithfully? God, I, I pray that that, that that message that comes to us from our, our spiritual ancestors, the two Johns, God, I pray that we would hear that that it would stir and that it would discomfort us so that we might be comforted by you. Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you, would, that you would cultivate in us a sense of, of ache to lay aside some things so that, so that we can lay those down, that we can put those down so that in the midst something new can emerge. God, I, I, I pray that over, over our community this morning. I pray that over this church. In Christ's name, amen.